It's the thing we never talk about. Forgive me as I do an awful ripoff of the movie Fight Club with a little twist. What happens in academia stays in academia. Today, I welcome to the show Dr. Therese Houston to talk about teaching what you don't know. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I've been looking forward to today's interview for some time. I welcome to the show today, Dr. Therese Houston. She received her bachelor's from Carleton College and her master's of science and PhD in cognitive psychology from Carnegie Mellon. Therese was the founding director of the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning, which is now called the Center for Faculty Development at Seattle University. And she has served in that capacity from 2004 to 2010. Drawing from her background in cognitive science, Therese has spent the past decade helping smart faculty make better decisions about their teaching. Her first book, which we'll be talking about today, Teaching What You Don't Know, was published by Harvard University Press in 2009. Therese, it was great getting to learn a little bit about you from your bio, but one of the things I like to ask our guests are are this first question, what's not there in your bio that we should know about you to really know who you are as a person? So, Bonnie, if you read my bio, you you know I'm a cognitive neuroscientist by training, and then I'm a faculty developer and have been helping faculty make better teaching and research decisions for about 15 years now. I'm also a writer, so those things are all in my bio. Um, But what you wouldn't know, there's a couple of fun things that I'd love to share um, with the help of my husband reminding me of of things that are interesting about me. In third grade, I led my class, my third grade class, on strike to demand better treatment at lunchtime. (laughs) It's it's so unlike my adult personality, except that I'm very much for a cause and I'm very much for looking out for others and, and looking for what, what's a need that's not being addressed in any case. I what got kind of treatment trouble. were you advocating? Well, we were, you know, third grade, we had lunch, and then we would have recess. And on re- this, I grew up in Ohio, and, and, and so a lot of days, recess meant that you had to be inside because it was snowy or rainy or just bad weather. On days that we played outside, it was fine. But on days that we had to be inside, we had, um, we had someone who insisted that we just sit with our heads down which is a terrible way mm, for yeah. eight, eight and nine-year-olds to spend a half an hour right after lunch, right? The strike lasted a day, of course, because I got in trouble from the principal. Oh, no. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I was told, you cannot leave students on strike, which I thought, well, but I, school employees go on strike. Why can't school students? Things did improve for us. There was a change made. We got new policies were put in place, about, and we were allowed to play at lunchtime. It, it all worked in the end. Oh, yeah, that's they got wonderful. The attention. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, your book was first recommended to me by James Lang, and he recommended it to me because it's a wonderful book, but also because of the voice that you write in. And I just want to say what a wonderful writer you are. And I truly felt like we were having a conversation, albeit the part of my conversation was in my imagination, but it really, you do have such a wonderful warm, engaging style and one that I could instantly relate with. But I did, I was excited to now get to talk to you and, and ask you a few questions about teaching what you don't know. And I wonder first, would you just share your experience or experiences with when you were first asked to teach something you didn't know? Like many people, like many people who have to teach outside of their experience or their expertise, it was my first teaching job. And it was at Carnegie Mellon University after I'd um, received my PhD. I had the opportunity to do some teaching. And the course, one of the courses they wanted me to teach was titled Research Methods in Child Development. To most people, that sounds very specific. And it is very specific. We were going to spend 14 weeks looking at how you do research with infants and how you do research with children whose parents have to sign consent forms and, you know, what it means if you trick children. Anyway, we were looking at all of those those complex things, um, what it's like to work with humans, but humans that don't have autonomy. And this was this was a complex course. And another thing that you should know about me is I am not a developmental psychologist. I'm not a specialist in in working with children. Um, up to that point, I had only done one research study with children, and I don't have children. <laughs> Most people don't ask me to babysit. I'm not. <laughs> not considered someone who's amazing with kids but I wanted I really wanted this opportunity to teach and they were offering it to me and I said sure I would be happy to do it and I worked there was another person teaching it at the same time I got a copy of his syllabus and I basically followed what he was doing except for adding some more learning opportunities for students I added some some extra assignments and reduced the points that the test was worth like the test was worth something like 75 percent of the grade and I added some homework some learning experience that I thought would help students. So I focused very much on the methods and much less on the content. And of course, then I just had to read everything I could get my hands on. And it was, it was a hard experience, but it was a good one. I, I learned a lot about how to teach well in something that I didn't know very well. And if I could go back to my 28-year-old self and give her uh, one piece of advice, I think what I would advise is to go talk to a content expert. Because I didn't, Bonnie. I just, <laughs> I didn't tell anyone. <laughs> not the person who asked me to teach the course, not the other professor in the department who was teaching it at the same time. I didn't tell anyone that I, I felt uh, underprepared to be teaching this. And I just, I just studied hard on my own and had lots of books on my desk all the time that I, I worked with. It was, it was before the internet was a fantastic source for information, so I had to keep checking things out of the library. So um, I, I wish that I, I had friends who were child psychologists. I wish I had sat down with one of them, offered to take someone to, to coffee once a week to brainstorm. What are the things that I should be teaching? What's a great example of a research study we should talk about? Um, but I didn't because I didn't want to admit that I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> so that would be that was a that was an incredible learning experience and and one that I wish I'd done a little differently. In reading your book and reflecting on it, and and, and in my own experience, I've been asked a number of times, including future tense in January of 2016, which is right around the corner. I've been asked to teach. No, it's coming. Your your book, uh, reading it came to at the perfect time. 
but I, I does seem like something we just don't talk about that much. And I'm wondering what were some of the things that got you interested in writing about this subject or were you asked? And I, and I do have to just quickly mention the best academic title, academic journal article title I've ever seen, Teaching by the Seat of Your Pants. I love that. That was I, I forgot. I didn't write down the year that you published that, but that seems like that Thank came you. before your book. <laughs> It's just yes, wonderful. Yes, teaching by the seat of your pants. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had. I, I always have trouble coming up with titles. Man, I'd love to have a title like that on my CV. So, how yeah. did you? How did you get interested in the in the subject? Writing about a book about it. I, I tend to reflect a lot about my teaching, and I've had many experiences, even when I'm teaching a neuroscience class, where I've had to teach something that is a cutting edge finding, something that is still being debated and figured out but it happens to be in the student's textbook, so I have to quickly learn the concept and the phrases, and they're often very very, very anatomical. So, for instance, um, uh, one experience that I had before I wrote the book was I was teaching a, a cognitive neuroscience class, and we were talking about different areas of the brain, and there was a finding that I remember was in the text, but I hadn't taken good notes on it because I had been quickly trying to take notes the night before about all the new material. I knew most of it, but there were a few things that I, were brand new to me, and it wasn't clear, and I, I actually made a mistake in my notes. It wasn't just that it wasn't clear. I made a mistake in my notes, and the two terms that I confused were superior colliculus and inferior colliculus, right? I say those words now, and it's like, you know, there's it's completely abstract. What would that mean? Right? <laughs> Someone in medicine would know, but most of us, and would forget quickly. In any case, I got them confused and used the terms incorrectly in class, and Mm. a student immediately raised her hand and read it from the text. Oh, wow. Oh, and it was painful. And I look at my notes, hoping that, like, is there some explanation here? There wasn't. (laughs) And and so I just had to say, you know, I had to... I had to thank her, and then I would go, go back and check that with some other sources to make sure it was correct falling a little bit and sure enough that was that was correct I had taken the wrong notes so it was it was an interesting moment for me even within my expertise there are things that you often have to learn that either contradict what you knew before or just brand new jargon or brand new finding in any case that was that was a, a very vivid case where I began to realize um, you know even as an expert in a topic this is this is something we can all we all have to struggle with it yeah. Unless, unless you're just teaching introductory physics and that's the only class you ever teach and you're a physicist and you've been teaching it for 20 years, right? There, there's some people in that position, but most of us aren't. One of the things that's really resonating with me as, as you're talking is where confidence comes in because I have done both of the things where one, I have, I have been confused myself getting myself mixed up between inelastic and elastic demand in economics and I just it's oh. I barely touch on it in an introduction to business class and a principles sure. of marketing class but I still should yeah. know that I mean that's mm. I, I should have known I sh- that should not be something that confuses me but then I've also have something where I completely know it inside and out it's right within my area of expertise but I just misspeak and I and then I'll say did I yep. I just say that. In fact, there was there was a time I, we were last year we were going to have my business ethics class come down to our house to watch a movie. Interesting. Yeah. And I'm I'm sharing with them about the plans because we I'm always sensitive to some students not having cars and that sort of thing. So I'm very oh, very nice. focused yeah. on trying yeah. to nonchalantly not point out the fact that someone sure. I know in the class doesn't have a car, but but also trying to be inclusive. So that's where my sure. mind is. And very then sensitive. and yeah. then so I'm talking about okay, we'll come down this and this. And then one of the students said, "So is that your address?" And I said, 
how did you know that that was my address? And she said, because you just said it. (laughs) 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 So, I mean, you can completely get, I mean, obviously I know my address, but you can completely be just so focused on something else that something you know so well gets lost too. Exactly. And even things sometimes that you've, you know, it's funny about the address, right? Because you were thinking you, you were looking for the cues. Does someone feel singled out? Or yes. you were probably doing some scanning of the environment. <laughs> you didn't notice what you said. So yep. <laughs> there's so much you have to do as a teacher, at least if you're really being responsive as a teacher. And yeah, and unfortunately, sometimes the, the content is the least important thing in that moment. One of the surprises I had when I started reading your book was how you grouped things and it makes perfect sense to me now, but I expected, oh, I'm going to read a book called Teaching What You Don't Know. And so I'm going to read about teaching a subject or perhaps even some aspect of a discipline that you don't know. And you really look at it from two perspectives. And once you've opened my eyes, I'm seeing it now all the time and, and recognizing it in myself when I'm needing to do it. So you look at teaching what you don't know from a perspective of the subject you don't know, but also teaching a group of students you don't understand. And I'm wondering, how quickly did you realize when you were researching for your book that it was going to break out into those two broad categories? It's interesting. I don't, it's a nice question. I don't quite remember when that idea came to me, but I know that when I was first proposing the book to Harvard University Press, I actually wanted to spend much more time on the topic of uh, teaching students you don't understand. So in in my original formulation, it was going to actually be even more of the book than it is. But when I was doing research for the book in 2007 and 2008, the topic of millennials and issues of diversity in the classroom was was emerging everywhere. It was something you, you, you couldn't avoid <laughs> if, you, if you were looking at teaching topics. And so instead of being able to, you know, perhaps devote half the book to teaching students you don't understand, I trimmed it back because I realized, well, so many other books are talking about millennials and issues of diversity and being inclusive in the classroom that I really then just focused it on, on a few issues. So it's interesting because um, the, book, the book actually would have, would have been weighted slightly differently if maybe I had written it a year or two earlier, but the timing that I had made me want to talk. No one was talking back in 2007, 2008 about teaching outside of your expertise. And so it ended up getting heavier weighting. And what have been people's reactions to the book since it's been out? The reactions have been great. Um, they ha- and they've gotten more positive with time. Uh, <laughs> so the book, the book came out in hardcover in 2009. And you know, one way that I can gauge the reaction to it is uh, what happens when people ask me to come and give talks. So when the book first came out, um, in that first year, 2010, 2011, when people from different campuses would contact me and ask me to come to campus, they really wanted to not use the title of the book in the title of the talk, right? So this was very interesting. They would, they would really want to make the topic seem much more neutral than it was. So they would, um, they would propose topics like strategies for teaching new material, right? <laughs> <It> <laughs> Making it sound as though this, this is one of these things that you might someday encounter, and mm. it's, you know, uh, it's, it's an entirely positive thing, right? Or, um, or one was, uh, uh, brilliance is not enough. 
planning a career in which you'll have to move beyond your expertise, right? That was another topic. that someone, So very early on, there was a very careful framing. Nobody wanted to use the phrase teaching what you don't know. And I think that reflected the sense of taboo. Well, if we're academics, we have to know what we're doing. But over time, people are now very comfortable using the title of the book in the if they invite me to campus. And I, so I think that reflects, first of all, that it's it's changed the conversation a bit about uh, about our relationship to our content expertise, which is good news. That we can you know, that teaching is more than just knowing uh, every single detail there is to know. In fact, teaching is, is much more about stimulating learning. And, and what does that mean? So I'm I'm pleased to say that that people are much more excited to talk about it. And I I, I have con- I have experiences now where I'm at a conference, um, and people will come up to me and, and they. They have so embraced this concept that they've come up with their own phrases for it. So um, someone came up to me at a conference just at the beginning of November, and she said, I love your book, Walking the Line, right? <laughs> and I, I was like, I had to think, and I was like, you, you might be talking about someone else's book. <laughs> and she, she described what the book was about, and I was like, that is my book. And she said, well, and then she had to think about it when I told her the actual title. She, she thought about it. She's like, oh, she's like, I just refer to it as, is walking the line because that's how she thinks about having to navigate mm. that balance between I've got to do something that I know well, but I also, if I'm going to be the best teacher I can be to my students, I've, I've, I've also got to teach them some things that are perhaps outside of my comfort zone. In any case, so, and that, I think that also reflects the image on the hardcover is, is someone walking on a tightrope that might also be, you know, creating that image for her. But, it, but it's interesting. To... People have embraced it much more. So what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say, I have to go look at the cover because I read it on the Kindle app on my iPad and never saw the cover. I'm going to have to look at that. Yeah, yeah. The new, the, the paperback cover is nice. It's, um, the paperback cover is rather humorous. It's a stack of books with so many colorful post-it notes that, you know, it's completely useless. <laughs> you know, no, no single post-it note is actually going to help you. Um, and then the, the original cover has a beautiful blue background and it's someone walking on a tightrope. And uh, I, I think it's a nice metaphor for for what happens when you teach outside of your expertise. Yeah. Well, one of the themes that you drew upon when talking about the reaction to the book was one of my questions. I wasn't sure if I was going to ask you, but I think I'm going to ask you. Here we go. <laughs> Brace go right yourself. <laughs> well, it does involve sharing a little bit of, a, of my personal experience. And that is, as I mentioned, I was asked to teach outside of my expertise very early in my academic career. And like you, I did not lead many third grade uh, revolts or at many since then, I tend to be a pretty much of a compliant person for the most part. That's not something I'm necessarily proud of, but that that is just my characteristic. And so what happens is when the person that you report to asks you to do something where I came from, you say yes. Exactly. And you work really hard to make it the best. And that came actually partially. I used to teach computer training classes. That was my first job out of college. Oh, yeah. And all the time we would be asked to teach a program that we hadn't seen the day before. And you start to discover a lot of connections once you've used one database or one spreadsheet. There are some similar themes. So I had built up a certain amount of confidence that I can make it happen. But also from a business standpoint, which I realize that's a very prickly way to talk about academics, but it's you have to fill these classes, you have to find people to teach them. I just didn't know that I could say no. And fast forward then five years later in the tenure process, I was criticized for it. And it was 
hurtful and, and made me angry. Now I look at it from much more of an objective standpoint. No animals were harmed during the tenure process. And I do have tenure <laughs> today. I was not physically right, harmed. <laughs> but I still I still think it's quirky to me. It's so not, now it doesn't hurt or sting. Mm-hmm. It's more mm-hmm. where I think, is this happening in other institutions too? Is this I, am I alone in <laughs> having experience that you get criticized for having done it? Is that something that, that you see other people experiencing too, this sort of double standard? Oh, very interesting. So you're saying you were criticized for agreeing yeah. to teach teach something that was outside of your expertise. I was criticized for teaching something outside of my expertise. Ah, okay. But, but I had been asked to teach it, so that was where I thought there was this double standard, yeah. Absolutely. I do think it's a very interesting, you know, people, that's not a problem that people bring up to me often mm. in, in talks, right? They usually, when people come up, they, they want to brainstorm more about, here's a particular class I'm teaching, what, how can I survive it? But it, it's interesting, when I was doing the interviews for the book, that was a conflict that people were very concerned about. When they looked back on courses that they had taught outside of their expertise, they didn't want anyone to know that they had done it because yeah. that would make them look like a less assertive person yeah. or someone who perhaps didn't have leadership abilities. But at the same time, they felt trapped in that moment that, like you said, well, I've got to say yes if I want to be seen as a team player, as I, if I want to be seen as someone who uh, is flexible and progressive in how I see my discipline. So I do. I certainly saw it in my interviews where I was specifically asking that question that, that people see that conflict. And it was funny to me because I thought, well, you know, if it's a past course, couldn't you admit it now, right? <laughs> but it, but that's not even the case that, you know, people can, can look back and, and comfortably comment on it. And just about everyone in my book wanted to be, an, a lot of people in my book wanted to be anonymous because they, um, they didn't want their name associated with this thing that they were doing outside of their expertise. One of the themes that came up earlier was around confidence. And, and then also what I'm hearing is just the sense of real anxiety that mm, comes from it. teaching something we don't know. Do you have a sense that that anxiety ever goes away completely? Can it be cured? Or would you say that our best idea is to just learn to manage when the mm. anxiety inevitably comes? What I hear from people is that for a lot of people, the anxiety doesn't go away, or they perhaps don't have it for certain courses, but then they have it, you know, they haven't had it for three courses in a, a row, but then suddenly they have that anxiety for the fourth new course that they have to teach. So what I what I found when I was doing research on the book is that there would be some people who, even in their first very first few years of teaching, didn't have anxiety about teaching outside of their expertise. Were they teaching classes where they didn't know the material? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Were they anxious about it? No, not really. You know, I, inter- I interviewed someone, a chemist, who had, hadn't used a microscope since her very first years in college. Her expertise was in computational modeling in chemistry. So, you know, microscopes weren't something that she used, but when you teach freshman chemistry, <laughs> you have to use a microscope. So for her, this, for this felt like very unfamiliar territory. Some of us might be like, that's not, that's not teaching outside of your expertise, but for her, it had been 10 years, right, since she'd used a microscope. Um, and microscopes had changed a lot in that mm-hmm. time. But she was very excited and comfortable teaching outside of her expertise. And I interviewed some other people who had had to, who were in very small departments and had to teach outside of their expertise. It was a, an annual experience, something they had to do every year where they had to teach something that was new to them because their department was so small and they had to offer enough content. And 
20, 25 years in, it was still very anxiety-provoking for them. So I, I think that a lot of this can depend on the individual in terms of does the anxiety go away or not. But here's what I found. For those people who had minimal anxiety, Bonnie, about the teaching outside of their expertise, there were a couple of things that were, un- were unique about them. Um, so it wasn't age or experience. But here's, here's what they were doing or thinking differently. So first of all, they had a choice, right? So when, when they had a choice about whether they were going to teach a topic outside of their expertise, when they got to volunteer or say no, they tended to have less anxiety. It's hard to know what the causal direction is there, but if you can, if you can shape what you're going to teach, that seems to make a difference in reducing anxiety. So that would be one. Um, a second thing that these people who were more poised and confident and less anxious did is that they addressed the imposter issue. So some of them would find a way to bring it up to their students. You know, they didn't say, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> but <laughs> they would find a way to, to tell their students, you know, no one can be an expert on this material. And what I'm going to do is always be looking for what's the most recent and important topic that I can be teaching you. So they would find ways to say, if I'm doing a good job up here, I'm going to be pushing the boundaries of, of what I know. So, or they found a way to, to confide in someone in their department so that they, they, they didn't feel they were alone in, in teaching outside, that somebody knew about it and um, was supportive of it, that that was part of their job. And the third thing that these poised and confident individuals did differently is that their teaching philosophy, and this is perhaps, this is one of the places where we have a lot of control, is that they embraced a teaching philosophy that said, I don't need to master the material. Now, that might sound to some people, like I know in, in, in content-heavy courses like nursing, where you have so much, or in statistics, where you have so much that you have to teach, or an introduction to political science, or even, in a, I'm sure, in economics, right, micro or macro economics courses, there's a sense of having a strong, um, Mary Ellen Weimer said, a strong allegiance to content. That's her phrase. Um, but if you, can, if you can develop a teaching philosophy that is, is not about mastering the material, people tend to feel more poised and confident. So what would that look like? What, would that, what kind of teaching philosophy would you have? So some of the people that I talk to um, have said things like, you know, my goal is to make you a good economist. My goal is to make you someone who can think like an economist. Mm-hmm. If I do that, I've been successful, right? Or my goal is to get students to ask smarter questions. If, if by the end of the course, the students can ask smarter questions, then I've been successful. So both of those are not a, particularly about my mastery of the content. It's about what students are showing as learners. And that was something that I, I found remarkable in the interviews, and it was, it was a clear dividing line between the people who were really anxious about this experience and the people who were less anxious. And so that's something that I encourage. Find, find a way to reframe your teaching philosophy. It can be hard in those courses where you have a lot of content you have to cover, but how can you how can you reframe it so that what you're doing in that classroom is about students learning? And I think that helps because it, it reframes why you're there and why the students are there. So we've just been assigned to teach a course outside of our expertise. What's the most important steps we can take in preparing to teach this new course? Oh, I love this question. Um, so I have uh, three suggestions. So the first would be to tell someone. <laughs> like I said, that imposter issue, it just it, it looms larger and larger the longer you feel you're faking it. Um, so 
even if it's just telling, you know, a, another junior colleague who's in the same boat and you tell them over lunch, but that, that reduces that sense that you're alone. So that's, I think, important. Second, in terms of actual strategy for the class, so that first one's about managing your own anxieties. The second mm-hmm. one is find five syllabi online for that course. This is the enter, enter the course title or some variation on the course title if you think your university has an uh, idiosyncratic title. Find five syllabi, and that will help you find out what those classes have in common. Does, it, does that make sense? Oh, perfect, yeah. Sure. So find five syllabi. It'll help you find out what, what, what are considered the core uh, topics or readings for that course, but it'll also help you find out where there's a lot of flexibility and room for creativity. And that way you might be able to pull in some things that you are an expert in. Once, once you find out, ooh, mm-hmm. you know, um, pe- people talk about marketing in this particular economics class, and I didn't realize we could talk about marketing. And I love marketing, so great. So in any case, it can open the door to your own creativity, plus it allows you to to serve the students well. So many people just use the syllabus that's already developed from their department, someone else who's taught the course, and that, that, can, that can just raise anxiety because you can't uh, follow everything that they did. There's a good chance that that'll actually increase your anxiety rather than making you feel more confident in what you're doing. So find five syllabi. And um, the other one, this is about time management. Because <laughs> you asked that earlier, uh, or you asked about, is this just a matter of managing time and anxiety? Um, I would suggest getting a timer. Use your phone, your uh, mobile phone, but find some program or get a, a physical timer and start practicing preparing for your class in whatever the increment might be, 45-minute chunks, 60-minute chunks, however you want to begin doing it. But set that timer, and that increases the sense of focus because it's so, and this is for the class prep specifically, it's so easy when you're teaching something outside of your expertise. You do a search, and there are, you do a search for a topic, and there are (laughs) Mm -hmm. 500,000 websites that come up. And then you do your next search, and there are 400,000 websites that come up. You think you're narrowing it down, but this is not satisfying. So you really need to limit the amount of time that you're going to spend preparing. And I'm not saying that you prepare the whole class in 45 minutes, but if you start learning to, this this can't just be that I use every minute of my entire day preparing for this class, but I'm going to start with 45 minutes, and I'll get through this part of of class prep, and then I'll have another 45 minutes this afternoon, it can really help you focus and, and get to actual, whether it be preparing the PowerPoint slides or preparing class activities, whatever it might be, to help you get down to business faster. What have I not asked you yet about teaching what we don't know that you want to be sure and share about before we move on to recommendations? Oh, uh, sure. Um, I would say that I'd love to get the language out there, and, and, I, and I, I see this increasingly often, I'd love to get the language out there of content expert versus content novice. Oh, yeah. Talk, talk more about that because that may be new for some people. Sure. Absolutely. So all too often, we just talk about being an expert or being a novice. And as professors, none of us want to be novices. <laughs> um, and so I think that it really helps us talk about this if we can talk about being a content expert or a content novice. So you could be an ex- a content expert is someone who knows the material and knows the field and therefore is an expert in the material and the topic. A content novice, on the other hand, could be an expert teacher. They They could have 10 years of teaching experience or 20 years of teaching experience, but they are still new to the topic. And I think that's a helpful distinction because 
all too often, if we're talking about being a novice, we, we feel as though we've been stripped of our credentials. And if we can talk about being a content novice, then all of us can admit that some of the time we're a content novice. That's, there's, there, there are new developments in our, in our discipline. So, of course, we have to be a content novice some of the time. You would hope so. And that so, can yeah. help us talk about like, oh, well, I'm going to bring these fundamentals to the class, but then I'm also going to be a content novice um, you know, one day a week, I'm, I'm going to teach some new topics. Um, maybe it's just part, part of the time you're a content novice, but I think that can help more of us imp- change the conversation and actually talk about teaching outside of our expertise. And plus, it gives, if you have a term for something, it often makes it that much more acceptable. <laughs> mm-hmm. So if department chairs are going to be talking in their departments about teaching outside of their expertise, talking about, hey, look, we've all been a content novice before. Some of us are doing it all the time. And that, that language just helps it be more valid. Yeah. Well, this is the point in the show in which we each give some recommendations. And I don't always recommend the books of the guests that I have, not because they haven't written wonderful books, but just because I typically hold at least one interview a week and I wish I could read a book a week, but I'm (laughs) not quite there. I have read your book and I, I wanted to just recommend it again as we look to closing out the show and just say, it's a wonderful read. It's wonderful just it's kind of it's almost like telling someone it felt like we got to you know, you and I got to have this conversation around my my thinking about being asked to teach something that is outside of my normal area of expertise a new class for me in January 2016 it came at a perfect time and you have given me new language for how to describe that and a new sense of confidence that I'm not alone in doing that I, I suspect that your prestigious publisher that went you went through for the book would not put a book out that only I wanted to read. So I suspect <laughs> it's a subject that resonates with more than just me. Yeah. And it's just a wonderful read. It's a it's a quick read. I hate to say that in the sense no, of like fine. dismissing it. But I mean, it's just it's very tangible. It's very conversational. And it would be a big recommendation from me. The second recommendation I'm going to make is we are for some of us, I know, getting to a holiday season, whether that be Hanukkah or, or Christmas. And so I'm just going to go materialistic here and say, (laughs) this is the priciest thing I've ever recommended on the show. There are a set of speakers called Sonos speakers, S O N O S. And they're wonderful because they are wireless. So you could put them in a room and just play music off of their app on your phone. And and it's kind of neat because if you have multiple speakers, which we do in our house, you can set them up to all be playing at the same time or different stations of them. Oh, nice. And one of the things we just found out, I got an email from my husband this morning, is that Apple Music, it will be playing through the Sonos speakers starting on December 15th. So that's oh, pretty exciting. Yeah, and they've had some special deals recently on the speakers, so it'd be a good time to check them out if anyone's been tempted by them in the past. <laughs> Very nice. Oh, great. And it's that's that's timely for me as well. My husband wants to get speakers for my mom for Christmas, and so <laughs> I will ask him if he's looked at the Sonos speakers. Well, you, you definitely could go less expensive. <laughs> oh, okay. Good to know. Speakers, good. But, good. But they're, they're wonderful. They're nice. Yeah. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. Well, we'll take a look. And what is your recommendation for people listening to Teaching in Higher Ed today? Well, I'll make two recommendations as well. We'll start with the with a seasonal recommendation. This isn't as much about holiday, but it is a time when people are getting sick. Mm. <laughs> you and I uh, uh, chatted about this, and I'm going to recommend if you have a cough or a sore throat that there is a fantastic tea out there by Stash. It's 
a common brand that you can find in, in a lot of grocery stores, at least on the West Coast. Hopefully, you can find it on the East Coast as well. So Stash, S-T-A-S-H. And they have a licorice spice tea um, that is fabulous for coughs and sore throats. It's not marketed as a... Um, a remedy, but um, my naturopath had suggested it to me, and it's really wonderful. And you know, it still only costs you know two fifty or two ninety nine in the grocery store. It's not a high priced tea, but it really does help a cough. So it's nice to have if you're going to get on a flight, <laughs> you can mm-hmm. keep that you know keep one of those prepackaged tea bags with you if you're going to to visit someone and you want to make sure instead of just a cough drop, this is a, it's a very nice soothing tea. Oh, it sounds so wonderful. One. It is, it is, and it, um, if you add some sugar to it, it, it tastes more spicy than licorice. So. Mm don't even have to like licorice to enjoy it. So that's one. And the other in, is a book recommendation, and this one is called Thanks for the Feedback. It's by Douglas Stone and Sheila Heen. Um, they negotiation classes at Harvard. Uh, you might be familiar with their earlier book, um, Difficult Conversation. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, so, so their most recent book is Thanks for the Feedback, and it's not – It's and the subtitle is The Science and Art of Receiving Feedback Well. And this isn't specifically a teaching book or about receiving feedback in higher education, but it is a fantastic book about how to be better at receiving feedback. All, all of us, right, when you receive feedback you don't want to hear, it's like, why, why can't that person give better feedback? <laughs> and this is instead a book about, well, how can you change your mindset so that whatever feedback you're giving, even if it's someone who's very bad at giving feedback, so that it can actually still be useful for you. I found it very a very helpful book. I'm so glad to hear you recommend that book. I was mentioning before we started recording that my husband also has a podcast. And right. he actually had the privilege of interviewing Sheila Heen when the book first came out that you're recommending. And I'll put the link to the interview in the show notes in case people don't have time to read the book. Although I'd say the book is the number one recommendation. But if if anyone is on a little bit of a time constraint, it's at least a nice introduction to the subject of feedback. Yeah, I'll look for that podcast because I'd love to I'd love to hear her talk about it. Well, Therese, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I know you have been sick with that darn cough that won't go away. And just appreciate your time so much. Thank you so much. This has been a real delight, Bonnie. This is, you, you, you're so good at asking questions. <laughs> Interesting questions are hard to come up with, and you've done a lovely job. It's well, a real treat to be here today. And it's just because you wrote such a good book, you made it easy for me. Thanks. Thanks once again to Dr. Therese Houston for joining me on the show, and thanks to all of you for listening. If you have yet to subscribe to the weekly email. That means you'll get just a single email from me in your inbox each week, and it'll have all the show notes with the links of the things we talk about on the show come into your inbox automatically and also an article about either teaching or productivity written by me on the weeks when I actually get to it, which this past week I did. <laughs> and just think of it, you could have a link to those Sonos speakers, those that great book, Teaching What You Don't Know, or the book, Thanks for the Feedback. You can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. I also always welcome your feedback on the show, potential guests, topics, or recommendations that you have for people who listen. And you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. I really treasure this community and thank you once again for listening. I'll see you next week.